Welcome to podcast number 21. Number 20 was from a year and a half ago. And I've been thinking about what to do next after jazz and movies, movie music, jazz per se. So I've taken Marvin Gaye's cue as the title of this podcast, What's Going On? This is a very broad category, and I'll narrow it down in a bit from what's going on in the country, the world, because 2024 is going to be (laughs) a complete mess, and that's not what this podcast is about. Narrowing that down would be what's going on in my life, which is not really that important to listeners because it's what's going on in their life that matters, and uh, I haven't taken nearly enough interest in that in my life to my detriment. And that narrows down to what's going on in music so far as my podcasting goes. And from what I can tell, what's going on in music, and from casual listening, from movies to what used to be radio, there's next to nothing going on in music. We hear music all the time, but nothing is happening in music. There's nothing going on to something different, better, more creative, new forms, None of that is happening. It's kind of a rehashing of the same things. It's kind of a musical stew that you just, uh, I don't know, add some some ingredients to and say, well, look at this, make a recording. At least with the advent of hip-hop, which has been around for, my gosh, 40, 40, 50 years, was something new. I don't care for it. I can't get into it. But at least it was something new. Music has become spectacle. Uh, You think of spectacle as something visual, but music itself incorporates spectacle as part of its nature. And I guess you could trace that back to MTV, where people would watch a video (laughs) or listen to a video as they watched. And that video became part of the music in the viewer's, listener's mind. My father, who was a, a jazz musician, had a mantra that has become my mantra that if the public likes something, it can't be that good. And the supreme example of this, (laughs) very unpopular opinion, I realize, is Taylor Swift. A couple of caveats. Taylor Swift has a a decent voice, and but if you listened to her music by itself, without her lyrics, it would be pretty bland. And that leads to the fact that her popularity rests almost entirely on her lyrics, which are quite good. Her songs are her lyrics. And her lyrics and popularity are so great that, of course, this year Time Magazine made her the Person of the Year for 2023. Think about that. A pop singer, so spectacular, in the sense we mean right here, 
that she became person of the year in Time magazine. That's a short, very short cut of a 10-minute version of the song, All Too Well. This is a line from Variety about the song. The song's story feels almost like a Groundhog Day of meditative pain in which the story will never end because the couple will just never stop breaking up in her mind. Well, it might end if the sister ever returned the damn scarf, but by this point, she doesn't need their closure. It becomes almost like a chant even more soothing that it is bitter. Right. And you heard the emphasis on story. And that's what it is. Story. The music is there as sort of a, uh, a platform to lay a story on. So why is Taylor Swift so popular? Because she writes really good lyrics, which are, in the terms of uh, Variety Magazine again, eternally teenaged. She's become kind of a Pied Piper to the point where one teenager quote from I can't remember where when uh, Taylor Swift got uh, involved with a football player the teenager said should I start following football now <laughs> wow okay enough Taylor Swift bashing but I'm trying to make the point that people who have music on are really involved with the words not the music itself a while back I wrote a little critique of art uh, in which I, I bashed Salvador Dali and uh, Norman Rockwell. Now, both these guys are excellent, excellent illustrators, but they are engaged in what I refer to as literary art. That as you're looking at the piece of art they made, uh, the painting, and you're engaged not so much in the graphic aspect of it as what is the story the artist is telling in the painting. I, or I'll say we, can apply the same phrase to Taylor Swift's music, or most of what is written now. It's literary music. That is, you're interested in the story on top of the music. And some of you are probably saying to yourselves, what about Bob Dylan? He won the Nobel Prize, and his, his music is about the story too. But his lyrics are profound and very creative. Uh, Taylor Swift's are geared toward people, say, under the age of 25. There's a place for that. Great. So knock yourselves out if you want to. Get into Taylor Swift's stories and her lyrics and enjoy them. That's fine. But do not confuse what she's doing with what I call, what I call music. Now, am I getting at lyrics and music being mutually exclusive? Absolutely not. But you should be able to remove the lyrics through some electronic means, listen to the music, and be just as knocked out by the music as you are by the lyrics. Now take this short sample from Buffalo Springfield from the 1960s. There's something happening here what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop 
children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. That's the opening of For What It's Worth. And I think the music is so cool that you could listen to the music for the rest of the song without Stephen Stills ever singing a note. Can we say the same thing about Taylor Swift's recordings? Okay, I admit I've only heard a few of her songs, but the music in the background is completely unoriginal and sounds like hundreds of other songs I've heard over the years. But then her fans don't care. Who cares? Because her music is all about lyrics. Now let's move on to part two of this podcast, which is called What's Going On. Part two will be what's gone on in musical history if you look back on even back to the 18th century one style of music replaces another it doesn't just go bop old and new but slowly in the background something is changing which becomes eventually the new style the norm in classical music, the symphonic form replaced what Bach was doing. Uh, Mozart developed a symphonic form, writing, what, 41 symphonies? And I, I know this is oversimplified, but just to give you the general idea, to make my point, Beethoven and Schubert and others continued to develop the symphonic form, and this became dominant uh, through much of the 19th century, through Tchaikovsky, and in the 20th century, Let's just say things went bonkers. <laughs> it went everywhere. Debussy's music developed a form which he, with a term you hated called Impressionism. And uh, then you have Stravinsky writing these outrageous ballets which caused riots in Paris. Now, this is an extremely simplified version of uh, changes in classical music over a period of about 150 years. I would I would never show this to anybody who know a lot of knew a lot about classical music. This is simply to demonstrate how music changes, or classical music, as well as popular music. Um, so what I'm going to do here is bore you with about uh, five or six minutes of classical pieces from Bach through Stravinsky, just so you can hear how this music changed. And we're going from the early 1700s through 1913, which is the last piece, uh, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring Ballet. Thank you. 
what you heard there were some, without identifying the pieces, because uh, one, it would bore the hell out of you, and two, it doesn't really matter. But those were pieces by Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Wagner, the famous Rite of the Valkyries, made famous from uh, Apocalypse Now, helicopters, Debussy's Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn, and finally uh, Stravinsky. Now, these changes in styles took place over, as I said, 150 years, and you're thinking, well, of course music changed. Well, the thing is, now music changes in styles much faster because we have access, almost immediate access, to any new forms of music. And obviously, I'm not a musicologist, but I know that the each new form of music was taking place in the background, which would soon be normalized. Though during these years, this took place over a much longer period of time. And aside from uh, peasant songs and maybe what somebody sang while they were making pots or bread back then, there was no really popular music, at least not in the way we have access to music today, through radio, movies, Sirius XM, or streaming music through the computer. Now you're probably wondering... What all this has to do with the, the podcast name, what's going on? I will get to that later in the podcast. I'm going to cover two periods in the 20th century when one type of music or style supplanted another style. The first is the 10-year run of big band music, which was mainly for dancing, uh, with bebop growing as an influence in the background. And this is in no way to undercut the uh, tremendous uh, talents of uh, people like Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman. But um, I don't consider Benny Goodman wasn't a big band person. He was more of a, you know, a small group uh, guy. But then you have Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey doing this horrible, <laughs> horrible version of uh, the Song of India. There was a, a, a trend in the big band era to take classical pieces and make them a swing, you know, either, you know, get hot or go home kind of thing. And the Song of India is from uh, Rimsky-Korsakov's opera Sadko. But, and what we're going to hear is indeed sad. <laughs> so this is Tommy Dorsey's arrangement of the Song of India. Now, at the same time that was being recorded, approximately, uh, this next piece, written in 1942, was recorded by Dizzy Gillespie. Thank <laughs> you. 
I really wanted to play the whole song, but uh, you know, uh, that's that that gives you the idea. Uh, that it's called Woody and You, and after a little bit of research, I found out something interesting. It's pronounced Wouldn't You, but at the same time, the Woody part is a, uh, a tribute by Dizzy Gillespie to Woody Herman and his uh, band. And I think everybody that I've read with reference to the song loves it, and I love it. That's the first, by the way, the first bebop recording uh, made. And um, it, it, it's amazing that that was being played at the same time as Tommy Dorsey's Schmaltz stuff. But the difference was you can dance to the Song of India, you know, dancing around the floor. You can't really dance to uh, Woody and You. You have to listen to it. And that was the whole point of bebop. It wasn't for dancing, it was for listening. And that's the reason it didn't become very popular for a long time. It was a tremendous musical influence. It's still being felt today, I guess. Uh, today's people are basing their stuff on people who were basing their stuff on bebop and stuff. But uh, a great influence, a tremendous influence on, on jazz. And this is my example, my first example of what's going on, what's going on, what was going on then was big band dance music and the going on part in the background, which would overtake it, at least as a style influence, was bebop. And if you care to, uh, I've done a couple podcasts about bebop and jazz. Uh, I can't remember the numbers, but they're back a ways, like eight or nine or ten or so. Now my second example of what's going on while something else is going on is... Uh, from the early 60s with uh, the British invasion overwhelming, thank God, uh, American bubblegum rock, if you can call it rock. I'm going to play this next piece without introduction to show you pretty much where American music was at the time. <laughs> That was a song called, you guessed it, Norman. That's from 1962 by a gal named Sue Thompson. That was her biggest hit. That got up to number three on the charts. And as I listened to that, I thought, thank God for the Beatles, huh? <laughs> the British invasion. They arrived in uh, February of 1964. None too, <laughs> none too soon. And they provided pretty much a wipeout of bubblegum music. I don't know that much about British rock at the time, but uh, I know that the Beatles and other groups were, I guess you could say, experimenting with different styles, or, or at least using American rock, American bubblegum rock, uh, to uh, go in a different direction. It's interesting, when I was over in England, if you want to know something about American rock and roll, American rock and roll of this period, ask a Brit. Those guys are really knowledgeable about American rock and roll. So what we have here is... Uh, 
what's going on in the U.S. and what's, you might say, coming on at the same time, but from a different country uh, into the middle 60s. And the influence of British groups on American music during this period is immense. Something else was happening at the same time, or maybe a little later, the middle to the late 60s uh, in American rock. The beginning of the decade was devoted to folk music. And folk music tells a story, and the, the focus on it is, is on the lyrics and the story, not the music so much. Well, what rock did in the middle 60s was pick up on the fact that you can tell a story and have really good music at the same time. Some musicians who were pretty well educated back then wrote meaningful lyrics and backed it up with great music. So you had people like uh, Joan Baez and Peter, Paul, and Mary, and groups like the Limelighters. That was, as I said, the Limelighters from uh, 1963. The whole folk thing, it, was, it lasted for a few years, and I, I think that it was kind of an attempt after the 50s to re-grasp American roots to get back to the basics and by playing, listening to folk music, Americans, young Americans thought they could do this. And it wasn't uh, some sort of intellectual surge and it wasn't what <laughs> to us right now it sounds almost like hillbilly music. It wasn't. It was, it was kind of like um, bluegrass. Bluegrass has wide appeal among very well-educated people. Now, I know I'm supposed to be demonstrating how one type of music was prominent while another undercurrent was growing stronger and replacing it. This is more of a coincidental, that is a coincided development. Uh, people like the aforementioned Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell continued pretty much uh, to emphasize the lyrics, although the music was, was good too. At the same time, that very talented musicians developed a, a new kind of music I can't think of a better example than Buffalo Springfield and the whole current of this new strain of rock developed into what would be, I guess you could say, developed into psychedelic stuff. New experimentation with, uh, you know, uh, Hendrix and uh, The Doors and definitely Cream. The point here is uh, the emphasis on music rather than just on lyrics, which takes us back to my <laughs> musical nemesis, uh, Taylor Swift, who is all about lyrics, period. Now, the big question, what in the heck is the point of this particular podcast? Well, I have tried to show that music developed, music itself developed over the, uh, what, the 17th, 18th, 19th century in classical music and the 40s with uh, dance music and the bop and bubblegum music, which was co-opted by British groups like the Beatles and others resulting in a new style of music. 
by now. If you've listened to some of the other podcasts, you know that I listen to a large variety of music. And my peeve is that I can't for the life of me figure out if anything is happening in music now. We're sort of on this non-developmental musical plateau and just sit there and listen to lyrics. And lyrics is the whole ball game, as demonstrated by what's her name? Is it possible, I wonder, that we've pretty much done everything in styles that we can? We've gone the big band route, we've gone the bebop route, and we've gone the bubblegum route, and the folk route, and the psychedelic route. And yes, there are many talented musicians recording good music. But is anything changing regarding style? I can't see it. We seem to be hung up on the what I refer to as the literary aspect of music, where people listen to the words, and that's all they listen to, because there's really nothing else to listen to. And we're on a kind of non-developmental musical plateau. After years of iterations of the same kind of arrangements and the same types of groups and the same musical riffs and using instrumentation as kind of a filler as background for lyrics, I think we can reasonably say that music is, at that point, dead. And that's where we are right now. And those who do love good music, where do they turn to? To hear it to old recordings. Am I saying that for people to enjoy music, they need to be exposed to new styles? In a sense, yes. When the current style has become so hackneyed that there's nothing left to stimulate a creative impulse, which is a fancy way of saying, oh no, not that again. Let's listen to the words, or subconsciously, simply ignore the music and go for the lyrics. Now, people do love music. So, is there an answer? <laughs> the only thing I can think of that can save music is immigration and assimilation. There are so many styles of music around the world. Uh, Indian music, for example, India from India, which I happen to like, that could be incorporated into American music. What a breath of fresh air that would be. Traditional Chinese music, the... the more South American melodies, or African. This incorporation would have to be slow and fairly subtle without eliciting comments from listeners like, what the hell is that? I've given a lot of thought to this, and this is the only answer I could come up with, because, as I've said, we've kind of like run the gamut of styles and <laughs> beaten, them, beaten them to death. And uh, we really need some, uh, some, some fresh material. And uh, other musical cultures can supply a much-needed injection of new, strange, even shocking listening experience. So, tell me what you think. I know this podcast has not been the most exciting one, and there's been a lack of musical examples. But I really I wanted to make a point here and scatter some casual thoughts about a topic that, to me, is, is pretty important. Music is a big part of my life. Okay, here we go again. If you want to contact me, gcarter1mwc at gmail.com. And uh, I really would like to hear some comments about this. 
So take care, and I hope to do another podcast before a year and a half. Bye-bye.